Well, this morning we are taking a little break, as you can see in your bulletin, from Philippians. We're going to be in the epistle of Romans, Romans chapter 1. You might ask, why are we doing this? Why are we pausing from Philippians and going to Romans 1? Well, the Liberty Coalition Canada has called on pastors in North America to preach on biblical sexuality and God's design for marriage. They called on the pastors in North America to do that last Sunday, but I will admit to you that halfway through the week I was already in Philippians 2, (laughs) steeped in Philippians 2 in our passage there. And then it hit me, oh no, this Sunday is January 15th, the day we're supposed to preach on this. (laughs) And so I missed it. But we're going to come to it this morning, Romans chapter 1. And so I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Romans 1. Now you might ask, why did the Liberty Coalition Canada do this? Why did they call on pastors in North America to preach on biblical sexuality and God's design for marriage? Well, they have a bill in Canada called Bill C-4 that makes it a crime to promote or advertise or help another person go through what they call conversion therapy. Conversion therapy. What is conversion therapy? Well, the government of Canada has defined conversion therapy for us. Here's what they say. It is defined as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, Change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Repress a person's non-cisgender identity. Or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. what they've defined as conversion therapy. Again, from the government of Canada's website, it says this, conversion therapy is harmful. Even when sought by consenting adults. Because, listen to this, because it perpetuates myths and stereotypes. That the sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression of LGBTQ2, you can't keep up with all of them these days, they just keep adding more, LGBTQ2 people are undesirable and that they can or should be changed. What do they say about the, the biblical definition of marriage? as God has revealed it to us in his word? Did you hear what they called it? Myths and stereotypes. It's just a myth. 
They won't even call it another viewpoint or some other opinion. No, anyone who says that a person should be the gender they were given by God at birth or act in a manner that is consistent with the gender that they were given by God at birth, meaning men marry women and women marry men, that is myth and stereotypes. And many of us hear this and we ask, what is happening? What is happening? What's happening to our society? Because this is not just happening in Canada, it is here in the U.S. as well. Many states already have banned conversion therapy. It's here. What's happening to our society? I'll tell you what's happening. We are under God's divine wrath. We're under God's divine wrath. This is God's divine wrath on display. Why do I say that? Well, because of what God tells us in His Word. Because of what these people have done. And what is it that these people have done? They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And God tells us that that is what ungodly and unrighteous people do. In fact, look at what God says about suppressing the truth in verse 18. Notice what Paul says there in Romans 1.18. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. What is Paul telling us here in this verse? He's telling us that God has made the truth of his existence evident to all men. To everyone. In fact, if you just look at creation, creation tells you there's what? A creator. Creation tells you that there is a creator. Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 20. Notice what he says there. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. All men are without excuse. But what have men done with this truth? They've suppressed it. They suppress it. In fact, we have a lie that's being taught in our nation, in fact, all over the world, called evolution. A lie that people believe and embrace. And what is the whole purpose of evolution? I'll tell you what the purpose of evolution is. 
Evolution is not to try and get at the root of how the world was created. That's not the goal of evolution. That's not the purpose of evolution. The whole purpose of evolution is to suppress the truth that there is a creator. And that God exists. That's the purpose of evolution. One creationist, Dr. Joe Martin, says this, The whole reason for evolution is to say, I can be here without the necessity of a God. That is its whole purpose. And that was the conclusion that Darwin himself came to. In 1880, he wrote to a correspondent and he said this, I'm sorry to have to inform you that I do not believe in the Bible as a divine revelation and therefore not in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He denied God. He denied the existence of a God. And that was what was driving his teaching of evolution. So that no one is held accountable to God. Because if I deny him and say that he doesn't exist, now I am no longer accountable to him. At least that's what they think in their own mind. And so Darwin suppressed the truth of God's existence, and now evolution is taught all over the world. And that's its whole purpose. Now, notice the beginning of verse 18 again. Notice what Paul says there. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice there are two things here that bring the wrath of God. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is ungodliness? That ungodliness there is living as if there is no God. It's a person who is living as if there is no existence of God. The Greek word there is asabia, and it means ungodly or impiety. It's, it's a lack of reverence for, devotion to, and worship of God. As one commentator says, it suggests a disregard of the existence of God. That's ungodliness. And then the result is what? The result is unrighteousness. What is that? One commentator says this, unrighteousness means unrightness and refers to acts that violate the standard of right conduct. It's the condition of not being right with God as judged by His holy standards. God has given us His holy standards and people deny the existence of God and therefore they deny everything that God has written. This unrighteousness here are sinful acts that come when one denies that there is a God. Think about this. When a person is at enmity with God, who becomes his God? He does. He does. So what's he going to do? 
He's going to act in accordance with his own sinful desires because he's his own God. He'll do whatever he wants to do, whatever feels good to him. Because he's his own God. So he can make up his own rules and his own standards and think he won't be judged. Because who becomes the judge? He does. And there are no more moral standards than which he is accountable to. He acts in sin and in unrighteousness because he is ungodly. And then what is the result of that ungodliness and unrighteousness? Notice what Paul tells us there in verse 18. What's the result? The wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. Now we have to understand how the wrath of God works. Oftentimes when we think about the wrath of God, we think about it only as God's eternal wrath. When we think about the wrath of God, oftentimes we think about it only in its eternal sense. That is, the wrath of God displayed towards sinners in hell. When God sends a sinner to hell, his wrath abides upon them. We think about verses like Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. We look at that and we understand that's God's eternal wrath. Or Mark 9.47 where Jesus says, If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is God's eternal wrath. But there are other ways in which God expresses his wrath. A second way is what we would call catastrophic wrath. God's catastrophic wrath. For example, the flood. The flood is God's catastrophic wrath. It was a worldwide catastrophe. Because, Genesis 6-5 tells us, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of this thought, of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Or we think of Genesis 18-20, fire and brimstone that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin was exceedingly great. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Homosexuality. And God will use catastrophic events to bring his wrath upon sinners. And so you have God's eternal wrath and God's catastrophic wrath. The third way that God reveals his wrath is what we call consequential wrath. God's consequential wrath. This is revealed in the principle, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
Think about all of the diseases that are out there because of sexual sin. You reap what you sow. Whatever a man sows, this he will reap. That is God's consequential wrath. Fourth way God's wrath is revealed is what is called eschatological wrath. That is God's wrath that will be poured out in the end times. Eschatology, dealing with the end times. It's what we read about in the book of Revelation in the tribulation period from Revelation 6 through Revelation 19. God's wrath is being poured out. God will pour his wrath out upon this earth before Christ returns to establish his millennial kingdom. That's God's eschatological wrath. But there's a fifth way in which God reveals his wrath, and that is through abandonment. Abandonment. This is God's abandoning wrath. What is that? Hold your finger in Romans chapter 1 and turn over with me to Psalm 81. Psalm 81. We opened up with Psalm 81 this morning in our call to worship. But as we continue to read in Psalm 81, there are some things that are revealed to us in the second half of this psalm. And notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 81, beginning in verse 8. It says this, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you nor shall you worship any foreign god. What is he talking about there? Idolatry, right? It's idolatry, foreign god. Let there be no other gods. Notice verse 10. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Or verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So, notice this, so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. See what God says to Israel there? What did he do? They wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't obey him. So what does he do? Verse 12, I gave them over. I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. You want to go your own way? Go your own way. Watch and see how it works out for you. <laughs> Won't work out well. But he gives them over. And the ungodly God deniers would look at this and they would say, yes, freedom! Give us over to our own desires. Oh, we would love that because we love our own desires. We can do whatever we want to do because God has given us over. This is wonderful. Freedom. 
But that's not the place you want to be in. That's a scary place to be in. If God has abandoned you. It's not a good place to be in when God brings His wrath of abandonment. Now, back over in Romans chapter 1, it says that God gave them over. That God gave them over. This is God's wrath of abandonment on display. Notice what it says down in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. Then notice what it says in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over. And then notice in verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Just as God gave Israel over to the stubbornness of their own heart, Paul reveals to us here God's wrath of abandonment. That God gave them over. Now, to be clear, when we talk about God's wrath of abandonment, this is not some impersonal wrath as if God is not personally involved with this. It's not as if God just lets go and is not involved in His wrath. He is personally involved in His wrath in this wrath of abandonment, as he's always personally involved in his creation, right? He's always involved in his creation. In fact, it says there three times, God gave them over. Who is the acting agent? God is. God gave them over. This is God's personal wrath expressed by turning people over. By pushing people in the direction that they are already going. It's as if God is giving them a nudge. A shove. You want to go that way? Here, let me help you. Go that way. God's wrath of abandonment. And you say, can God do that? Can God be actively involved in something like that? Hold your finger in Romans chapter 1 and turn over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the day of the Lord and he's talking about the man of lawlessness. And he talks about the activity of Satan there and all kinds of deception of wickedness for those who perish, who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And notice then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11, notice what it says here. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, if this wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't believe this, right? God does this? He does. He's the acting agent here. For this reason, God will send them 
send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is true? No. What is false? God is the acting agent. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Talking about God's wrath of abandonment, God is involved in His wrath of abandonment. And when we talk about the wrath of abandonment of God, we're not talking about some kind of uncontrolled emotional outburst of anger by God. You know how you and I just burst out in anger over things? It's not how God does it. That's not how God displays His wrath. No, this is God's settled indignation and controlled, passionate, hostile feeling towards sin. And what is God's attitude towards sin? He hates it. He hates it. He abhors it. Because He's a holy and righteous God. And He cannot tolerate sin. Ever. But man loves their sin. And they get to a point where they suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. Look again at verse 21 of Romans 1. Paul says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Notice what Paul says here in verse 21. He says that they knew God. They knew God. Now, Paul is not talking here about a salvific knowledge of God. As if they knew God like you and I as believers know God. It's not what he's talking about here. This here is a knowledge of God's existence and a knowledge of God's attributes that Paul tells us about back up in verse 20. Remember what he says there in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, through creation. It's been understood. How does God reveal that knowledge to everyone? Through His creation. Every single day, creation is declaring the truth of God's existence to us. Did you know that? Every day. When we look at creation, God is saying something to us. He's saying, I exist. I'm the creator of all of this. It's the illustration that Ray Comfort gets, uh, gives when he's witnessing to people where he talks about the building. You look at a building and therefore you know there's a what? A builder. Simple. Simple analogy, simple illustration. You look at creation and creation tells you there is a creator. Pretty simple to understand. We would look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and the galaxies, even down to the trees and the plants and the animals and the birds. All of that is telling us that there is a creator. Creator. 
But then look at verse 22. Notice what Paul says there. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What is this called here? This is called idolatry. Idolatry. What is an idol? Steve Lawson says it this way, an idol is anything you love more than God, fear more than God, or serve more than God. Anything you love more than God, fear more than God, or serve more than God is an idol. And Paul says to us in verse 22 that they profess to be wise. Ah, we'll tell you how everything came into existence. (laughs) I've got some letters after my name, you know. And so I'm wise. I know it all. But, what does Paul tell us here? They became what? Fools. Fools. Fools with letters after their name. They earn these degrees and they they teach all of this all over the world. They're studying all of these things. And what are they doing? They're becoming more and more foolish. When they teach evolution, they're fools. They've denied the existence of God And what do they then begin to worship? Idols. They worship idols. In fact, this is the opposite of the Thessalonians who Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Those in Thessalonica, those Thessalonian believers, they turned to to God from idols. And serve the living and true God. But those whom Paul is describing here in verse 23 are those who have rejected God for idols. You see, the rejection of the true God always leads to the worship of false gods. Always. Leads to idolatry. We saw this in the wilderness with Israel when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And what did the people do? They make a golden calf. And begin to worship that. They turn from God. And they begin to worship an idol. We look at that and we go, how foolish. Really, Israel? A golden calf? Couldn't you come up with something else? (laughs) We laugh at that, but people still do this today. Maybe not with golden calves, but with all kinds of other relics and false gods. In fact, 
Did you know that in Buddhism, which is the fourth largest religion in the world, Buddhists revere and pay homage to a tooth, a tooth that was said to have been Buddha's. They have little diamonds all around it, and they have it in a case there, and they pay homage to this thing, to a tooth. They worship the creation rather than who? The creator. And what are they seeking to do in idolatry? They're replacing the knowledge of God and therefore the worship of the one true God and they begin then to worship false gods. And that's what evolution has done. Evolution has replaced God. And now you can worship whatever you want to worship if you believe in evolution. Because I'm not held accountable now to a creator. By the way, you will worship something. Even if you deny the existence of God and you say there is no God, atheists, oh, they worship. They do. Because we were created to worship. Outside Magazine had a picture of three fishermen and under the picture was the following caption. The waters are their church, the rocks are their pulpit, and they worship a 20-pound steelhead that moves in mysterious ways. And although we might laugh at that and think it's funny, it's true. It's true. Why? Because man was created to worship. But there's a downward spiral that begins when man exchanges the worship of God for the worship of idols. And in order for man to do this, they must deny the God that they know exists. And they'll begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. Idolatry. And that is where the downward spiral begins. But it doesn't stop there. It just begins there. In fact, in the next nine verses, in verses 24 through 32, we're going to see this downward spiral as God's wrath of abandonment is expressed towards sinners who reject Him. We're going to see this in these three phrases. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Verses 24, 26, and 28. And this here is the degradation of a society as God's wrath of abandonment is poured out. Notice the first step down there in verse 24. Paul says this, Therefore God gave them over and the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. One commentator says about verse 24, this has to be one of the most frightening verses in the Bible.
That word therefore gave them over in the Greek is the word paradidomi. Paradidomi. And it's, it's a judicial term that is used for a judge handing a prisoner over to his sentence. What did God give them over to? Impurity. To impurity. And this is impurity that begins with the lusts of their what? Hearts. Begins in the heart. Begins in the heart. That word impurity there was a general term for uncleanness. But it's used in a moral sense and is associated with sexual immorality. That's what Paul is talking about here. Impurity there is sexual immorality. Notice the result of practicing this sexual immorality. Look at the end of verse 24. Their bodies would be dishonored among them. That is the result of all sexual sin. It degrades the body. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Sexual sin dishonors the body. Did you know that there are degrees of sin? We hear often, oh, all sin is the same. It's all equal. No, it's not. It's all equal in the sense that all sin condemns us. But not all sin is equal. There are degrees of sin. How do we know that? Based upon the consequences that come for that sin as God has revealed in His Word. You think about this. If somebody is speeding, they're breaking the law, are they sinning? Yes. If we murdered speeders, (laughs) that would be wrong. Because it's not to the degree that it deserves to be murdered. But with murderers, what does God tell us to do? What do they deserve? The death penalty. There are degrees of sin. And what is Paul saying about sexual sin here? He's saying it's it's bad. It's bad. Their bodies are dishonored among them. And you will see a society under the wrath of God when it begins to embrace sexual immorality. We saw that here in the U.S. with the sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s. Where there was an increased acceptance of sex outside of marriage. God created it to be between one man and his wife 
in marriage. But the lusts of the heart began to invade the society and it became acceptable to have sex outside of marriage. Then they started handing out contraception. Encouraging people. It's okay. Go and do it. People denied God and they began to accept sexual immorality. Pornography. Pornography then began to become rampant in the culture and has turned into a multi-billion dollar industry. Did you know that? Not multi-million, multi-billion. According to a study done by Covenant Eyes in 2005, the United States pornography industry generated $12.6 billion in revenue. And in 2006, a year later, it generated $13.3 billion in revenue. Now it'll just show up on your Facebook page or Instagram because a transgender and non-binary couple won an appeal this last week against Facebook and Instagram because the platforms originally took down the topless photo of these two women. But because they identify as transgender and binary, they appealed and they won. And they're now allowed to post nude pictures. It'll just show up now. That's where we're at as a society. And so in this downward spiral, you begin with idolatry, but then the first step down under God's wrath of abandonment is sexual immorality as a man is given over to the lusts of his heart to impurity. Then notice what Paul says in verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a what? For a lie. Paul, again, here he's just reiterating what he's already told us back up in verse 23. He's just reminding us, oh yeah, and you want to know why this has happened? Because they have denied God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And this has led to humanism. Humanism. What is humanism? Humanism rejects God and it it exalts man. And it puts the focus and attention on man. And even though a humanist will tell you that they are glorifying man, what they are really doing is dishonoring man because they've reversed it. They've done an exchange. They've believed the lie And they have denied God and they have put man on top. And when man does that, then man believes he gets to do whatever he wants. 
And when man lives according to his own sinful, lustful heart and begins to act out in any way that he wants, well, just look at our society. That's what's happening. They exalt idols instead of exalting God. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. They exalt man and worship and serve man instead of exalting God. Instead of worshiping and serving Him. And down the society goes. But there's a second step down. Look at verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women. And burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Notice now it says that God gave them over to what? Degrading passions. Degrading passions. In verse 24, we saw the lust of the heart that leads to sexual immorality and the dishonoring of the body. Now we see the passions of man's heart and he describes it as degrading. Degrading passions. That word degrading there means not honorable, not worthy of respect. It means shameful and disgraceful. And what does Paul identify as the degrading passion? Homosexuality. It's homosexuality. And why is this so bad? I'll tell you why this is so bad. Because the sin is not just perversion. But this is the sin of inversion. Inversion. Literally, this is taking God's created order and what is natural and turning it on its head. As one commentator says, perversion is the illicit and twisted expression of that which is God-given and natural. Homosexuality, on the other hand, is inversion. The expression of that which is neither God-given nor natural. And that's exactly how Paul describes it in verse 26. And notice who he starts with here. He starts with who? The women. This is how bad it's gotten. He starts with the women here and he says, their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And this here would be shocking. Reading this. We should be shocked by this. Because in most cultures, women are the last ones to fall to sexual perversion and homosexuality. Theologian Charles Hodge comments on this and he says, they, the women, are always the last to be affected in the decay of morals and their corruption is therefore proof that all virtue is lost. 
that's lost. Think about this. How did God create women? To be nurturers. To bear children. To love them and care for them. To raise them and nurture them. But when you have lesbianism, that's all out the window. There's no way to nurture anymore. There's no way to bear children anymore. There's no way to care for our little ones. It's gone. All virtue is lost. Not only was it the women, but it's also the men. Notice what he says there about the men. They abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. We saw this in Sodom. Genesis 19, when Lot even tries to give his daughters to the homosexuals. Realizing and recognizing that's the natural function. You can have my daughters, and what do they say? No, give us who? The men who are in your house. They burned with passion. That word burn there means to have a strong desire for or to be inflamed. They're inflamed and their sin is like a massive wildfire that destroys. Because that's what sin does, right? Sin destroys. But especially sexual sin. And especially homosexuality. Because it's not even natural. It destroys. Paul says there, then at the end of verse 29, they're receiving their own, in their own person, the due penalty of their error. What is their due penalty? Well, it's not just sexually transmitted diseases like AIDS and other diseases. But the penalty is also the self-destruction that homosexual sin brings both physically and spiritually. And their penalty here is actually the sin of homosexuality. You desire that, you burn with passion for it, here, you can have it. It's yours. And watch and see how it works for you. It won't. Because it's not natural. And it goes in the face of God. It's sin against Him. And think about this. Notice what Paul says in both verses 26 and 27. He refers to the natural function. What does Paul have in mind here? tell you what he has in mind. He has the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of creation. Creation. Here is the natural function. God created Adam and Eve. That's the natural function. 
Paul has in mind here Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. A biblical understanding of creation. Listen, church, that is why it is so important for us to get Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 right. We must get it right. It's foundational. When you get that wrong, look at the effects that it has. When you attack the biblical account of creation, you are attacking God. It's an utter assault, an all-out attack on God when people attack the biblical account of creation. What happens then? People then deny God and they live in the lusts of their own heart and down it goes. Which is what Paul again reiterates in verse 28. But this time it's worse. There's a third step down. Look at verse 28. Notice what he says there. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. This is the mind that has totally and completely rejected God. That's the depraved mind. It's not as if they have refused to put God in their mind, but the idea here is that they have completely thrown God out of their world. They want absolutely nothing to do with Him. They suppress the truth, right? That word suppress there means to squash. To squash the truth. To get rid of God. Let's just get Him out of my world. They want absolutely nothing to do with Him. That's the depraved mind. What's interesting here is Paul is essentially doing a play on words in this verse. We could read it like this. As they did not approve of God, God gave them up unto a mind that is disapproved. Or we could say it this way. As they deserted God, God abandoned them. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that about this last giving over, he says, this is the most terrible and terrifying thing of all. To be given over to a depraved mind. To give them over to a depraved mind is to say that God gave them over to a mind that is worthless and useless. That's what that word there means. That word depraved is used of impure metals that were discarded because they were not of any use to anyone. Discard them. Get rid of them. And giving them over to a depraved mind means that they aren't even able to think straight. Are we there? We're there. 
They are literally unable to come up with moral judgment. That's what it means. What does a depraved mind do? Look again at the second part of verse 28. It says that they do those things which are not proper. You know why we have the transgender movement today? God tells us why. It's pretty clear. Depraved mind. How about the slaughter of millions of babies? You know why that's acceptable in our culture today? Depraved mind. And now, if an abortion is even botched and the baby is born alive, they're fighting to let those doctors kill that baby. Depraved minds. Totally depraved. Men trying to become women and competing in swimming events? Depraved mind. Even women trying to become men and compete against them. Listen, you'll do a lot better if you just compete against the women. Because the men will beat you every time. (laughs) That's just how God created it. Well, why is all of this happening? God has given us over. God has given us over. As a nation, we have been given over to a depraved mind. And then Paul goes on and he lists 21 sins, which are not exhaustive, of what the depraved mind does. Notice what he says in verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Notice this one inventors of evil. That's how depraved. They will even invent evil. Disobedient to parents. We see that on display. Just go to the grocery store on your way home. You'll see it there. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And how do you know when things are at their worst? Look at verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Think about this. Do people know the ordinances of God? Yes, they do. Just as we talked about, Jim talked about that this morning in equipping hour. Knowing the difference between right and wrong. Do people know? Even those who have never heard the gospel before, do they know the difference between right and wrong? Yes, they do. Paul tells us in Romans 2.15 that the law is written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. 
The law of God is written on their hearts. That's how they know the difference between right and wrong. And when the accusation comes and the condemnation comes, because their conscience is convicting them, what do they do? Suppress it. If I can just suppress this, if I can just get God out of here, then that'll make me happy. I'll get to live however I want to live. They have the law of God on their hearts. A basic understanding of right and wrong. But they choose to ignore that and they push God out of their lives and God gives them over to their depraved mind. It's God's divine wrath of abandonment. Notice in verse 32, and they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I can remember back in 2011, driving home after work and hearing on the radio that the Presbyterian Church USA, the PCUSA Church, had just voted to ordain homosexual clergy. Not only do they do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Drove by a Methodist church the other day. Hanging out in front of the Methodist church. You know what was there? Rainbow flag. Giving hearty approval to those who practice the depravity of their own mind. They give hearty approval to sin. But church, we can't do that. We can't do that. God has called us to stand for the truth. We must go and tell people the truth. We must declare the truth. The truth that marriage is between one man and one woman. That's how God created. We must tell people that transgenderism is sin because God is the sovereign creator who has created you, either male or female, and you are to live according to that reality. And our school teachers and our politicians and even clergy in so-called churches need to repent of their sinful ways and come back to the truth of God's word. Sadly, this is where we're at as a society. Under God's wrath of abandonment and totally given over. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? I'm glad you asked. To many people, it seems like all hope is lost and there is nothing that we can do. Let me give you some hope. You need some hope this morning? Let me give you some hope. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, Paul is talking about the believer being dead to sin and alive to Christ. And notice what he says there in verse 16. He says this, 
Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Notice this, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. I want you to notice verse 17 there. Thanks be to God. Why? Because although we were slaves of sin, we became obedient from the heart. To what? To what, Paul? To that form of teaching to which you were committed. That last word committed there is the same word in the Greek for given over that we just saw back in chapter 1. Same word. Paradidomi. And so literally we could read this last part like this. To that form of teaching into which you were given over to. And how does that happen? How does someone go from being given over to sin to being given over to the teaching of God, the teaching of Christ? Through repentance of sin and faith in Christ alone. It all goes back to what? The gospel. That's our hope, church. It's the gospel. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is not in this society. Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in lawmakers. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. And what has he done with our hearts? He has turned us over, committed us to his word so that we would love his word, cherish his word, want to know his word. And God is the one who has done that to sinners like us who don't deserve it. And there are sinners who are out there, lost people who are out there today who have a depraved mind who need to hear this same message of hope. And it's our duty, it's our job to go and tell them. To say, listen, I know the life that you're living. I know the sin that you're in. Listen, I have the answer. You need eternal life. Let me tell you how you can have eternal life. It's the best news ever. It's the gospel. It's what gospel means. Good news. Paul, before he launches into God's wrath in Romans 1.18, in verse 16, he says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. Here's the gospel call to all people, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel itself, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. It's the power of the gospel that leads to salvation. You see, we will look around at our society and we'll go, oh, all hope is lost. Mm, there's no more power great enough to save anymore. Listen, church, I'm telling you, there is. <laughs> it's the power of the gospel. 
that leads to salvation. When people are totally depraved and they're living in the wickedness of their sin, we have the power that will change them. We have the message of the gospel to give to them. We have hope. Because it's changed us, right? It's changed every one of us who are believers here this morning. God worked His power in us and God can work His power in them. And our job is to go and give them the hope of the gospel so that they would repent and believe in Christ. 